This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. To 1 Peter chapter 5, and this is the very last concluding message of a series we've been doing since uh, June or July or so on this first letter of Peter. And we are reading from uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 14, the end of the chapter, and you will see those words on the screen to my left. Listen to the word of the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your, by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who was likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things I love about the New Testament, and especially about Peter's letter, is that this book is always honest. And Peter never attempts to sugarcoat the difficult things the people of God are going through. He doesn't tell us the nice, soothing, comforting things we would like to hear, but are, are, which are not actually true. Peter knows life is difficult. He knows that these Christians are under the long shadow of abuse, discrimination that foreshadows approaching persecution. He knows things are difficult. In fact, Peter tells them, things are even worse than you think. Because behind the opposition, the malevolence of your neighbors and the authorities, there is an evil, superhuman spirit who is seeking your destruction. These are not nice words in our passage. They're not easy, comfortable words. They are hard and difficult words. But through these dark words, a great joy bursts forth that enable us not only to endure the hard things God calls us to, but to rejoice and be glad in the assurance of what God has waiting for us. And he begins this passage by exhorting us 
to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And you might remember from last week that Peter had said that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want God to oppose you, which is a terrible thing, be a proud person, stand up straight and tall. But if you want to receive grace from God, if you want his favor to shine and shower upon you, stoop down low because that's where the grace is. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that phrase, the mighty hand of God, this is in fact the only instance in the New Testament where these words occur. But if you know your Old Testament, these should be familiar words. If you know the story of the Exodus, these should be familiar words, which occur again and again in the books of, books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, where the people of God declare their confession, their Nicene Creed is this. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terrors and with signs and with wonders. The mighty hand of God is his powerful might, which he exerts on behalf of his waiting people. The nation of Israel is in trouble and in distress in the land of Egypt. They are slaves and God reaches down in his power and with mighty acts, with 10 plagues, one after another, he rescues them from the land of Egypt. His mighty hand opens up a dry path in the midst of the, of the Red Sea through which the people of God walk. And God's mighty hand brings the water down on Pharaoh and his horsemen who pursue. The mighty hand of God goes with the people in the form of a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. The mighty hand of God brings manna, Raining down from heaven, the mighty hand of God brings cool water out of the rock for his people. The mighty hand of God is the power of our Redeemer to rescue his waiting people. So when Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, this is not a hand that is going to crush us as we fear. The mighty hand of God is cupped over us to protect us. And that hand holds terrors, but the terrors are not for God's people, but for their enemies. His hand does not crush us, but it protects us. And the mighty hand of God, which we fear, is actually the place of greatest safety. And the only way to be under that hand of God is if you stoop down and crouch and crawl beneath that safe place. And the reason we lower ourselves and we go under is not because God loves our humiliation, but because his ultimate plan, in fact, is to exalt us, to exalt us at the proper time. We would all love the exaltation to come today, would we not? Humbling yourself, the place of lowness and humiliation is not the place any person here prefers. At the proper time, he will exalt us. Strangely, paradoxically, the way up is the way down. If you've ever driven through Hero's Circle, the big roundabout there, you know you have to be prepared when you go into that intersection. Because the way over there 
is not actually over there. It's over here in the opposite direction as you circle around and you spiral and somehow, miraculously, you shoot out in the direction of the district that you plan to go to. And it's completely unintuitive. And this is the way of the kingdom of God. If you want to go there, actually, you need to start walking in that direction over there. That is the mysterious way of God, the way Jesus Christ himself walked. Because though he was in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped onto, to be held for his own benefit, but he took the form of a servant and he humbled himself. When we humble ourselves, we're just being honest about the place that we actually deserve. But Jesus lowered himself down, down, down to the form of a slave, to the very lowest place, to suffering and humiliation and death. And therefore, because he has done that in obedience to God, he has been given the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Jesus' degradation and his humiliation have earned him the ultimate exaltation to be be declared the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. And all of us who call ourselves Christians, who are in Christ, who belong to Jesus, the only way to exaltation is to follow the path that Christ himself walked. That is the only way to exaltation. And as we do so, Peter invites us to cast all our anxieties upon God. Now, many of our worries and anxieties are silly and trivial, of course. Peter is writing to people who are losing their friends, who have been abandoned by their families, who are at risk of losing their livelihoods, their status, and perhaps even their very life. These were men and women and children who had a great deal to be anxious about. So Peter's not saying, you know what, look, everything's going to be fine. It's nothing. Don't worry the way we tend to soothe ourselves or one another. He knows they are in terrible distress. And he says, take your anxieties and load them onto the broad back of your God. Because the things that distress you and worry you and cause you anxiety are not matters of anxiety to God. Everything is under his control and he can take it all. All your anxieties, without exception, give over to God. And the reason is this, because he cares for you. God cares for you. It's a very simple truth and one we are so quick to forget. God cares about me. I matter to God. I am important to God. And you matter to God. And you are of great value to him. You are precious in his sight. And he never takes his eye off you for a moment. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he cares for you far more deeply than you care for yourself. Even the most paranoid, worry-prone person on the seats before me, God cares for you far more than you do yourself. And he numbers even the very hairs on your head, Jesus tells us, which few of us have had the patience to actually count. God knows all those things. 
And what's very striking here is how Peter links together humbling yourself and casting your anxieties on God. The casting the anxieties is actually a subordinate phrase to the humbling yourself. Humble yourself by casting your anxieties upon God. Isn't that interesting? It seems like Peter is saying that our anxiety is often a form of pride. I don't trust God to take on the things that weigh me down. I don't really believe that his wisdom, his power, and his love are sufficient. I believe that my own power, wisdom, and love are in fact superior to God's and that it's safer to carry the burdens on my own backs than to put them on God's. That is foolish, foolish pride. And how much needless anxiety we cause ourselves by being too proud to give our worries over to God. The Bible teaches us that the humble person is the happy person. The humble person is the happy person because they know I can't take care of any of this, but God is taking care of it for me. Now, to be carefree does not mean to be careless. Because the very next thing Peter says is this, be sober and be watchful. Don't have a mind that's befogged and confused. You need to be awake and alert because there is something sinister and evil about there, out there. Your adversary, the devil. If God is your friend, you have made a terrible enemy for yourself. The devil, Satan, the serpent, the dragon, and he is the personification of cosmic evil. Here is this being, this not only an angel, but perhaps even the highest of the angels whom God created, the summit of God's entire creation, who of all God's creatures has the greatest power and the greatest intelligence. And he is filled with hatred and rage, and all that power and intelligence is directed against Jesus and his followers. He is naked, pure hate. And the devil is described as prowling around like a roaring lion. Satan is sleepless and unblinking. And we rest and we take our eyes off the ball, but Satan never does. He never does. He is always prowling, pacing around like a roaring lion, trying to find his prey. And lions, of course, are are often ambush predators who lure and seduce and deceive as Satan himself does. And if he was a truly patient angel, if he was truly wise, that's all he would ever do. But he's so maddened with pain and rage and hunger that his roar shakes the night. All of his malice and hatred and destroying lusts are burst out in this huge roar. And imagine yourself as a solitary traveler going through the grasslands. And there you are at your campfire, poking the coals, drifting off, and you hear this earth-shattering roar. And the hairs on your neck stand up. And if you were not sober and watchful before then, you certainly are for the rest of the night. 
And this lion is seeking someone to devour. He roars because he cannot contain his malice. This lion lusts after blood. And his appetite for flesh is insatiable. He never has enough. He wants to kill and kill and kill. As Jesus told us, the enemy came to steal and kill and destroy. Satan hates everything God created. He is against being in principle. Anything that exists ultimately comes from the mighty hand of God And Satan is determined that those things will be destroyed and become non-entities. He's not your friend. He doesn't desire your ultimate pleasure. He He desires your annihilation, your total destruction under his terrifying power. And he's impatient. If Satan was truly playing the long game, he never would have rebelled against God at all. Because to rebel against omnipotence is to assure your own defeat and destruction. It's inevitable. He is not patient. And he cannot restrain himself, even in times of seduction and temptation, from breaking out and inciting persecution and hatred against the people of God. And if you are not sobered and frightened by this point, you should be. Because there is a tremendous evil power working for your destruction, and he has at his disposal a huge host of lesser beings who do his will. Years ago, Michelle and I had a number of occurrences where we would wake up in the morning in our beds, unable to move. Both of us were having this at the same time, and we could sense this evil presence at the foot of our bed. And we were lying there, unable to move our limbs, barely able to croak anything out of our mouths. And we cried out the name of Jesus and this thing vanished away. And it made us aware that we are always being watched. You are always being watched by eyes that are seeking out any kind of weak point, any way to destroy you. Always. There's always something or someone peering through your windows trying to find a way to bring you to your death. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Peter is not venting his frustration with human authorities and the Roman government or local politicians or people's neighbors. No, he knows that behind them, and they are responsible for what they do, but behind them is the evil one. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickednesses in the high places. It is a deadly fight that we enter when we follow Jesus. And Peter's exhortation to his readers and to us is this. Resist him. Stand firm and resist him. And there are times to run away from the devil, but when he roars in his anger, that is when we must stand even if his breath is blowing in our very faces. Now, this sounds like an exceedingly foolish thing to do against such a powerful enemy, doesn't it? 
I would not think that things would go well for the antelopes who decide, you know what, we are sick of running away from the lions. We're tired of this. It's not fair. We're going to turn around and make our stand. It would end in bloody disaster for them. And the same for us if we are called to resist in our own strength with our own power and our own intelligence and wit. But we are not. We're called to resist Satan, verse 9 says, firm in our faith. It's our faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ and his victory. You know what? There's really two dangers always when it comes to Satan that Christians tend to fall on. There are those who take the devil far too lightly and fail to recognize him at work around their lives and in the world. And of course, there are those who take Satan far too seriously. What matters is not who is against us, but who is for us. What matters in the end is not who is against us. However frightening, however malevolent, however clever, however destructive, what matters is not who is against us, but who is for us. And who is for us is God our Father through Jesus Christ. And in spiritual warfare, as always, what we must do is fix our eyes, not on Satan, not on his demons, but on Jesus, the one who conquered Satan. It's a very disturbing thing when you meet Christians who seem to know much more about Satan and demons, and they have lists of names, and they have maps and flags, and goodness knows what else, but they seem to know very little about Jesus and his great gospel. Jesus can take care of all that stuff, My eyes and your eyes need to be fixed, to be fastened on him. Whatever is roaring in our ears, eyes on Jesus. Because the truth is that Satan is already defeated. When Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, he took away the guilt and shame that this accuser, this slanderer, uses to torment us and intimidate us and keep us enslaved to him. And that Good Friday, Satan imagined, was at last his moment of triumph as the forces of evil seemed to be victorious. But when Jesus rose from the grave, when he ripped the black gate from his hinges, the shout of his victory spread panic through the forces of darkness. And Satan, the captain of evil, has a fatal wound on his head. He is going down and he knows his time is short. And in a little while, in due season, at the right time, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who has faithful and true written on his thigh is going to come, the rider on the white horse, and conquer Satan and all his demons and all the forces of evil and fling them into the bottomless pit, the abyss, forever. And that's why we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We are held in the strong hand of Jesus and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, not even Satan himself. 
And as we resist, as we stand firm, as we hold on to our faith, as we remind ourselves what God has done for us in Jesus and the power and dominion that Jesus is now clothed with, we also remember that we are not alone in suffering. And I can imagine that these scattered believers on the Anatolian Peninsula to whom Peter was writing might have wondered, are we the only ones? And have we taken a wrong turn somewhere? Have we somehow wandered out of the will of God because we're experiencing these things? And things seem pretty hopeless, and they're grim, and they're getting worse. What is happening to us? And Peter assures them, and he assures us that this is an experience of the whole family. The whole brotherhood of God throughout the world is experiencing the same kind of persecution, discrimination and abuse, prison and execution. All these things are not unique to any one people, but throughout the world, where followers of Jesus are faithful to him and are resisting Satan and his forces, they too are experiencing those things whether they're in Nigeria or North Korea or Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iran or Saudi Arabia or Eritrea or Sudan, wherever in the world the people of God are, they are facing and standing against persecution. And that should provoke us, brothers and sisters. When we hear these stories, that should provoke us, that we not be the ones who fall short, that we not be the ones who apostatize and fall away and fail to keep faith with Jesus. It is remarkable, by the way, it's translated the sufferings being experienced, but literally it's the sufferings being completed or accomplished. There is malevolence and persecution that's happened at the level of Satan and those who hate God, but there's something that God is achieving, that he is completing in his people. God's purposes are being worked out. And the good news is that this suffering, this hatred, this persecution, this, uh, the anxieties of the devouring enemy are only for a little while. After you have suffered a little while, Peter says in verse 10. And here we are on this stony track with holes and pitfalls and cliffs to the left and to the right. And through the mist. As it opens, we see that this track is leading us steadily upwards and we catch the gleam of something not that far ahead. Suffering is not the whole story. Suffering is a path and the path is going to terminate on something and the suffering is going to end. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, Peter writes. Isn't it amazing that the God of all grace, the God of the mighty hand and the outstretched arm, this God has called me. He's called you if you believe in Jesus. There is a summons upon your life from the very throne of God, a destiny that God has planned for you. And it's not merely a polite invitation. This is the unshakable plan of God. What he's called you to, what he has summoned you to is this, eternal glory in Christ. The glory of God 
the unveiled glory of God will fill the deepest longing of the human soul. To see the face of God is what all of us were created to behold. And it is the summit of human happiness to behold the face of God and to become like him ourselves. And here's this destiny that God has for us, a destiny filled with singing and feasting, with dancing and rejoicing, with freedom and liberty and life. And this whole calling is in Christ. Those two words which are so important in the New Testament is called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And frankly, I'm not sure whether the in Christ attaches to the calling or to the glory. I am pretty sure that being in Christ stretches from one to the other. From the very first moment we believed in Jesus, God placed us in Christ. And he is our mighty fortress in the storm. And when you are in Christ, nothing that assails from without can possibly snatch you from his hand. And that in Christness, that safety, that security goes all the way from calling to glory. If you belong to Jesus, you are totally secure in him. Totally secure in him. And then there's this wonderful promise that God himself will restore us. He will himself restore you. We encounter that word when we were going through the gospel of Mark in Mark chapter one. And there it was used to refer to the disciples who are mending their nets. We're all a little ragged, a little ripped and a little torn in body and mind and spirit. We are broken nets and we struggle with physical handicaps and mental illness and emotional trauma. And there are wounds that we receive in this life that will probably never be healed until Jesus comes back. But one day, God's own fingers, deft and strong, will stitch us up, will mend us, and will repair us. And this is a task that God delegates to no one else. He doesn't pass it off to Michael or Gabriel or some lesser angel. God himself will be the one that mends his wounded, ripped, and torn people. And the very hands that created you are going to make you whole again, whole at last, whole as you never have been and never will be in this life. And the God who restores us is also going to confirm, strengthen, and establish us. This rising crescendo that speaks to the total security we will have when God sends his son and makes everything right again. God has called us to something greater than paradise. Revelation doesn't just loop back to the Garden of Eden. Because if we showed up and we discovered There is a tree of knowledge of good and evil in this garden again. And there is a talking serpent slithering around. That would be terrible news. And we'd have this awful feeling things are not going to turn out well. There is no tree of knowledge of good and evil in that garden. There is no serpent. There is no roaring lion. 
because the city is built on Christ. And he has done what Adam could never do for us, bring total security before the face of God. And we will be in a city that can never be moved and can never be shaken. And we will never wander away to be snatched and devoured and destroyed. And notice that Peter says, God will do this. He will. And so this confirming and strengthening and establishing is not just a hazy future promise. God's not saying, look, you're on your own for now. If you manage to make it to the city, then you'll be safe. In the meantime, good luck. God will do this. He has promised to do this. And therefore, whatever anxieties we face, whatever demonic or satanic attacks we have to endure, however much people might hate and despise us, we are just as safe now as we will be then. We don't have the full realization or enjoyment of that safety, but in the plans of God, under his mighty hand, you are just as safe and secure now as you will be. This is the true grace of God, Peter declares as he wraps up his letter. This is the true grace of God. Everything you've been experiencing and everything I'm telling you is really the grace of God in your life. There is suffering. Yes, there is opposition. There is a devouring and roaring lion. But this is the true grace of God. You have not lost the way. You have not wandered from the path. You are standing under the firm, under the grace of God. Stand firm in it. The hand of God is stronger than the jaws of Satan. The hand of God is stronger than the jaws of Satan. And as we go through this life, there are many lonely and dark and dangerous miles yet. But we see the footprints of Christ ahead of us and beside us. He has gone down this path before himself and defeated every foe and overcome every danger. And he is with us now, guarding us, securing us, manifesting the presence and grace of God in our lives. And therefore, as Peter concludes his letter, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace in the midst of warfare, peace in the midst of anxiety, peace, the shalom of God, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, through many dangers and toils and snares, we have already come. And it's grace that has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. We thank you that you are the God of all power and the God of all grace. Your might and your mercy are what make us secure and at peace. And Lord, you know our anxieties, you know our distress, you know the difficulties and burdens we must carry. And you know as we barely perceive the forces of evil ranged against us. And we ask, Lord, that in your kindness, you would manifest your power. Your hand is as mighty as ever, and you still stretch out your arm to those who call upon you, O Lord. 
Lord, we look forward with longing to the day when we behold you face to face and we enter the gates of the celestial city. Lord, make us a people whose hope is firmly set on what you have promised, our faith firmly established on who you are, and our love poured out on the God who has loved us so richly in Christ Jesus. In his great name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.